and welcome to another edition of the Fat Tail Investment Podcast. I'm Callum Newman, and I'm thrilled today to have on a resource fund manager, Hedley Widow, um, who's going to tell us about his mining clock and what that indicates for timing entries and exits into mining stocks on the ASX. Now, before we get to Headley, let me give you a little bit of background on a, an important conference I went to. So back in 2017, I flew up to a, a conference in Queensland. It was called the, the Resource Rising Stars Conference. And it was two days of companies presenting. Um, and it was really interesting to me because you could get a feel for the people around the companies and, and which, which ones uh, were a little bit obscure or maybe a little bit lacking in energy and and some of the ones that were like, oh, I'm, I'm a bit more interested than I was before then, then compared to when you just hear about them or read their announcements or, or whatever. Um, now, interestingly for, for me there, I was in the lift going down and I met a guy, I didn't know his name then, but I, I met a, a, one of the uh, directors of a company that was going to present and his name turned out to be Tim Goida. And at the time he had a little resource exploration company that had a couple of gold projects, one in Victoria, one in Canada, and a couple of other projects uh, around Australia. Fast forward about a year, even a bit longer, I ended up recommending that stock in December 2018. Uh, and then fast forward from that again to uh, March 2020, that stock went on to hit one of the biggest resource discoveries in Australia in the last 20 years. Not only that, Tim Goida also has a lithium stock that's gone from, say, $0.02 cents to about $1.80 um, in the last 18 months. So I would say since that conference, uh, Tim Coyter's net worth has gone from, I don't know, $20 million to almost a billion or something. Uh, absolutely incredible story from, from his perspective. But the reason for uh, the podcast today is that I also saw a guy called Headley Widdop present at that conference. Now, Headley runs his own fund. Um, that purely invests in resource exploration uh, stocks. At the time, he showed up on the, on the screen uh, a clock that he used that came from his dad, I think he tells us later, um, that uh, at the time, you've got to remember this is 2017, was down towards the, the, the market had been in distress and he was like, well, this is a very good time to get in. In a general sense, timing-wise, as we, as we come out of this downturn into the next upswing. Now, lo and behold, uh, you know, the years pass and get busy with other things. I kind of forgot about his clock. And uh, it was only I just happened to glance at the computer the other day and I, I saw it pop up. I was like, I remember that. Um, and the clock is pushing towards the danger zone. So immediately I was like, I've got to get a, get a hold of Headley Widdop um, to see what he says about resource stocks today. So that's what we've done. Um, now, as I said, that conference was really, really good fun. Uh, in fact, Belvedere, show, show that bit of footage that we've got from the conference. I'll, I'll probably enjoy that. You're one of the most beautiful girls I've ever seen. Thank you. But I think my mouth is too big. No, it's the right size. For me, that is. It really was a, a, a wonderful time. Um, and I did a lot of work on that weekend. And as I alluded to earlier, it led to some uh, great investments. So uh, now we move on and it's time to hear from Headley Widdop. And he's going to tell us about gold, about the exploration sector, where he sees opportunity and danger. I hope you enjoy it. Here's Headley. We're going to start with the clock. So by way of background, 2017, I'm sitting in Resource Rising Stars Conference. I remember you putting the clock up there and I'm like, oh, I've never seen the resource cycle described in that way before, even though years ago I read, you know, Jim Rogers, hot commodities. And he, you know, he always, and the, the theory you've always got to buy when things are in distress and all that, which is sounds great in theory, but it's always a little bit more difficult. Uh, then I say, I happened to see a tweet from a recent presentation that you did showing the clock moving up. So just for the people that don't know you or don't follow resources quickly, can you tell us a little bit about the clock? and uh, your view of where it might be now. Yep. Um, so the, the clock is a concept which probably originates 
30 or so years ago uh, out of a stockbroker called JB Weir. It was originated by a person called Robin Whittup, who's my father, and uh, I work with him now. So we've, we've sort of carried this concept through. Um, and it, it was developed really just as a cartoon to show how the resource uh, cycle sector moves from boom to bust, bust to boom, and, and around and around. And the thing which makes the clock analogy so appealing is that it has, uh, I suppose you'd say, uh, a sequence of characteristics that you can see in the market uh, each time around, which are reasonably recognisable, and they betray liquidity coming into the market. Now, you can you can compare times in the market by just comparing prices, and you can say, well, here's the low, here's the low, were the prices the same? And, and maybe they were. I think that would probably be coincidental if they were. And, and then, you know, same at the peaks. Um, does the market moving past a previous peak indicate that you've reached the end of a cycle? No, not at all. Um, typically, uh, peak upon peak upon peak is going to be higher and higher and higher. So comparing shapes can be misleading, but comparing behaviours uh, that drive the market to new peaks each time is the is the basis of the analysis, which uh, which gives you that. So, uh, for example, um, we align the the very start of the bust, uh, the crash at midnight. So, clock strikes twelve. Um, Cinderella's coach turns back into a pumpkin, and uh, and all the investors uh, turn back into well, I suppose they turn back into mice, don't they, and run away. Um, and and liquidity leaves the mining sector. Now, it's it's not money abandoning it completely you know it's there's never been a cycle particularly in recent history where bhp has been completely sold out and gone out of business companies like bhp and rio still have strong cash flows through those times um but you can see that they go through deleveraging and they need to try and pare back their costs and things like that at the very bottom end of the sector where you have the explorers their funding gets cut off because they have no cash flow they raise their money in the market and investors stop investing in fresh placements and ipos and things like that uh, in order for them to explore. As time goes on, uh, there's a healing process, investors come sneaking back, uh, and the, probably the first indication that um, the market is reopening, if you like, as far as the explorers go, is that you can start to see a tick up or even a recommencement of IPOs of um, exploration companies onto the market. Now, there's two big markets in, a, in the world, the ASX, um, which is where we live, uh, Callum, um, so we see ASX every day. Uh, and then in, in Canada, uh, there's there's a two-tiered exchange. In fact, it's more than that, but the two tiers of the key one, TSX and the TSXV. So uh, when you start to see new exploration IPOs coming onto TSXV and ASX, um, it, it, it shows you that you've hit six. So we position that at the other side of the clock from the bust. And that, that defines when the boom commences. Uh, now, there's a lot of people who stop me at conferences and say, mate, boom doesn't start then. Um, <laughs> and they don't stop me to talk about three o'clock. They don't stop me to say, hey, you know, this is happening. Do you, do you think it's still three or is it four? They don't give a stuff. And most of the time, they're not even at the conference to stop me at three or four o'clock. But at six, <laughs> at six is when people just start to have a glimmer of disagreement. So that's the other, that's the other uh, sort of marker for me is, first of all, you're seeing liquidity sneaking back into the small end of the market. But in the social pages, you're starting to get people saying, no, it's not six, mate. You know, it's been, it's been six for ages or it's nine or it's this. And then that, that tempo of disagreement actually creeps up as you sneak around. So, um, and from IPO starting, you start to see things like exploration expenditure creeping up and you can track that uh, for jurisdictions like Australia, you can track that through the ABS. Um, I think the catalog number might be, uh, oh no, I'm gonna get this wrong. Is it 8412? Anyway, that if you go to the Australian Bureau of Statistics website, you can Google or you can search for ex mineral exploration and uh, you can download the statistics for decades. Um, so you can see the cycles apparent in how much money is spent and you can even see metres drilled and money spent so that you can work out, you know, whether it's actually just an inflationary thing or whether there's actually an activity measure going up. Um, but exploration starts to tick up. So you go through seven o'clock as that happens. And as you sort of sweep through nine and 10, um, you start to see things where the junior sector has been so successful that you get people who have uh, dependable salaries in big companies moving in and starting their own you know, brand new career as a, an MD or a CEO for the first time uh, in a junior company heading up an IPO. Uh, and you start to see really quite large deals taking place. Um, and you know they become more hostile. Um, you might see premiums sneaking in as well. And then 
by the time you get to 11, um, the one thing which can happen at 11, which cannot happen at any other time is very, very large IPOs of mining companies. So by that, I mean $100 million or more raised. Um, and that shows you that liquidity is probably at the highest. Just, just to bring it to the reality of the market. So I'm thinking of what was that copper company? Is it 29 metals that came to the market yep. last year? Something like that, where those guys put together the copper assets because they could see people wanted ex- In fact, they just said like, investors want exposure to copper. We'll give it to you. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And it's been, it's been a really successful IPO, that one, right? So it's gone up since, um, which is a measure of a good IPO. If you go down in price afterwards, it, it means you've conducted the deal wrong. Um, if it goes up afterwards, you've probably conducted it wrong too, but you've got to remember that pricing an IPO is not an exercise in keeping it constant straight afterwards. Uh, for it to be a success, everyone needs to feel that. So 29 medals uh, raised, I think, at two bucks or something like that, and they, you know, they, it didn't take them long to get to sort of 230, 240. Everybody's happy about that, uh, and they, they picked the copper market well. Um, so just to, it, just to, to relate it back to when you, you so you're getting this rising interest with investors, do you, do you think there needs to be as part of this sequence a narrative like today we have electric cars, battery metals? There's going to be some overarching narrative that pushes people along with it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So liquidity is totally motivated by a theme, and that is probably the thing that varies most from cycle to cycle. Is what what is the theme that's driving it? Um, and uh, this is one of the things which lo- people love to uh, disagree with me on. And I love to dis- you know, have this disagreement because it shows that pe- people are thinking about it and they, they don't think about it unless you're in that part of the cycle where they do. Um, so in 2000, and, uh, let's say four, five, six through seven and eight, um, it was iron ore in China. Uh, and people would say to me, uh, although I, I hadn't moved into this business then, but you know, I'd have conversations with them in say nine and 10, and they'd say, no, the clock, the clock was wrong. Uh, iron ore was it, uh, you know, was it 10, 11? Uh, everything else was it, was it six? And it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter if it's iron ore or if it's gold or if it's anything else. If it's pulling money in and driving IPOs, exploration, uh, larger and larger M&A, uh, proliferation of smaller companies which turn into larger companies, that is the definition of liquidity. And it's not defined by what drives it. If it pulls it into the mining sector, that's good enough for me to say it's driving the clock. So this time around, um, you can definitely say that, uh, well, we went we went into six o'clock in very, very early 2016. And the driver at that point, I'm almost certain was gold. Um, the first six months of 2016 saw a huge uh, rise in the price of gold. I can't remember what the percentage performance was, but it was, uh, it was you know, it was eye-watering. It went up quickly. And that provoked a lot of money very quickly uh, to come into the small end of the market. Never really happened before. So we went from six to seven to eight, I think, uh, or, or thereabouts very, very quickly. Um, gold then sort of tempered. And it wasn't long after that, that lithium, uh, and lithium had been having little spikes here and there, but yep. lithium <clears throat> kind of became a, a fledgling proper uh, commodity market circa 2017, as you started to get some serious money raised to build some new projects. And um Lithium had a spike, it came back down, uh, but that was another pulse of liquidity. So I, I think that probably uh, saw the, the market move towards, uh, I think it was roughly nine o'clock by the time that, that lithium wave had washed through. Um, and, and it was two different uh, commodity baskets which had done it right. But, but then we sit here now, and uh, my assessment is that the, the mining sector is at 11 o'clock. Um, and we should probably come back to that because I need to caveat it by it doesn't mean it's about to crash. But Can I throw one more commodity? Uh, in 2019, yeah, we had Brazil go down and that, that juiced up the iron ore market as well. So it really has been a bonanza uh, in so many ways. For And I remember, this is funny actually, because in August 2020, there was a, a headline about gold going bananas on the Financial Times. And I remember I said to my guys, you know, gold has been running now for so long. Like it really had from 2018, they'd gone up so much. And I'm like, it's always brightest at the top kind of thing. I'm like, <laughs> I'm a bit wary of gold. And they've just gone gone down ever since. <laughs> so that's what you're sort of watching for, isn't it? You're like, you've got Maybe. to look backwards as well as forwards and go, this has been running, like how many is left to get in now? You do absolutely, yeah, uh, and I mean, there's a there's a there's a good fundamental view of a lot of commodities which will play out, but um, uh, I think your feeling that you were talking about in gold there was um, it was probably more a gold specific one rather than a mining sector specific one. Um, but you're right. I mean, the juicing of iron ore by the the sort of collapse of Brazil for a period of time uh, definitely had an effect, although 
the difference between uh, sort of circa 2017, 18 and 2005, six, if you like, just to compare, you know, like and like, uh, at one point there was a lot of interest in the iron ore market and there are a lot of junior companies listing, picking up ground, trying to be the next iron ore miner. And there's been one, if we're really honest, uh, that, that grew out of that and has been a stayer and that's Fortescue. Um, there's been a couple of smaller ones uh, and there are companies that produce iron ore, but um, you know, very few of those were born singularly from uh, that, that price movement. Uh, quite a few of them are on their way already or, or have sort of fizzled into not much. Um, this time around, there's been very few juniors in iron ore. And I think that's because the realisation was that uh, if you want to mine iron ore in any jurisdiction, sooner or later you're going to need access to a train set and a port. And if you don't have those things, then your costs are going to be uh, extremely high and probably above the point where iron ore will sink to in the, the, the base of its cycle. Uh, so you'll be out of business at some stage. Um, so, you know, it becomes a shorter term game for them. Um, but 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 here we are at 11 and the flavour of the month is definitely battery metals or battery materials. And um, that is undoubtedly driving a lot of liquidity. Uh, it's starting to drive M&A and we've seen some of the bigger market metals like copper and gold um, move into quite an advanced stage of, uh, of M&A and deal making, uh, which uh, and by the time you combine that with the IPO behaviour, uh, it seems like it's quite a, a mature market from the point of view of money in it. So when you're looking, I noticed that Goldman Sachs came out the other day and said, oh, look, there's a shortage of everything. And I'm seeing headlines about Australia going into another mining boom and super cycle. In one sense, there's a classic signs of a top, right? Like when it, there's all this positive news coming out and everybody feels good about it. Is that part of the danger signs that you're sort of seeing? Uh, just seeing them doesn't, doesn't flash danger to me. Uh, but you've got to remember that at the peak of the last boom, the headlines were fairly similar. Um, but in saying that, you know, you can have two or three years of those headlines. Um, I, I tend to think that, and I, I don't want to knock Goldman Sachs, uh, when you do, or any other bank or media outlet, when you do some sort of fundamental analysis, it's very difficult to forecast a tipping point because you tend just to extrapolate, you know, a, a supply and a demand going into the future. And the thing which takes demand away, which is what causes the problem for, you know, for the economy and that flows through into most other things, uh, is not going to be foreseen. And, and and if it is foreseen, then its effect is not going to be uh, either. So in 2007, say, um, similar headlines had overlooked the risk of, uh, of a global financial crisis, yet it cropped up and it caused an, an almighty problem. Um, and uh, I, I suppose you could, you could say now, um, the danger signs are there in that it's not so much that those headlines exist, but that I think uh, risks are being very clearly overlooked. And uh, we're seeing costs uh, within the industry start to go up very, very quickly. Uh, now, we, we're seeing inflation across the entire world, but I mean, we're seeing creeping of costs um, in the December quarter last year. And we haven't seen the numbers for this quarter that we're in at the moment. But I suspect that if you put those two quarters together, you're going to see some pretty eye-watering percentage jumps in costs in miners. And that's something which uh, takes you very close to the top as well, because it starts to rattle investors' confidence in what their money's doing, right? Uh, it's not just operating costs. If you say you're going to build something for 100 million bucks and you commit yourself to it, and then by the time it's built, it, it's cost you 150 or 200 million bucks, investors go, wow, you know, um, that's changed the MPV quite markedly. And yeah. uh, it's diluted me a lot more than I thought I was going to be as well. Well, that, that would, you would have to say that's fairly acute for the lithium guys because these are the guys that are actually building mostly, most of those lithium stocks are not producing yet and they have to now confront this reality. Is that yeah. probably the, the tricky, because it's the market is priced in such a bright outlook for, for those businesses? Yeah. Well, yes, I think that's a great risk for them. Uh, and I, it's going to be difficult for me to address this um, without being overly specific or or by being super general, but I'm going to have to try and go down the middle because I don't want to uh, draw attention to anyone in particular unfairly. But there have been some companies which uh, have put together lithium mines and, and they've been quite successful in sort of right place, right time. And I think probably have the internal operating discipline to take themselves through the troughs uh, and then make the most of the, the ups. Um, in any space, uh, there is an exception. And in any space uh, where there's been a lot of speculative money one, you know, wander in or wash in in this case, um, there's been a rush to spend it. There's been a rush to raise it. And I suspect that that's where the most potential mistakes will creep in as well. Now, when you overlay that with inflation, 
I think there's definitely going to be projects which are either part built and get to a point where they run out of money or uh, they're an exciting project but just can't fund the amount that they need because uh, in, a, in a fast rising inflation market like this, your expectation of the cost driven by a study or, or even front end engineering, uh, which is supposed to be very, very accurate, uh, can be here. And then, you know, two weeks later, when you commit yourself to paying for something, it's crept up to here. By the time you get to install it, it's up to here. Um, now, you'll be paying for things, but you don't pay for everything right up front. So by the time you've sort of experienced this creep, 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 uh, and you've you've purchased and taken delivery of all the parts that you need, or you've purchased something and it's sitting on a wharf, <laughs> and in the time that it's sitting on the wharf, shipping rates have tripled. Uh, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways that uh, cost can creep in there, which is completely out of your control. Um, so building a project is when you're most vulnerable. And there are, I think, as you say, there are a lot of lithium projects which are at that stage um, and they're going to be tapping the same pot of money. Uh, so, you know, there's a, there's a risk of that running out. Now, I don't think that, I don't think that could necessarily bring a top to the mining market, but that is certainly going to put a lot of doubt in investors' minds. Um, so it puts a lot of pressure on the lithium price to keep going. So up how do you cope with this as a fund manager? Because my understanding is you invest in the junior sector. So are you are you hunting exploration results, or do you like do you want to carry those businesses from the, the deposit to the producing mine? So the way that the way that we manage this as a fund manager is we try to align our investments uh, or the most aggressive point of our investments when the market is cheap, and then uh, we're happy to follow our money as we creep around through the upper parts, uh, you know, through the sort of six through to nine. And then after you get past nine o'clock, you're starting to question yourself. Uh, you don't want to be sitting there going, we need to sell these things at any cost. You know, you've still got time at that point. And there are things where, you know, is it more sensible to sell a good story before a perceived crash or not? Uh, I think the answer to that is, well, if you think it's a really good story, hold it and fund it on the other side um, if you don't think it's going to be existential to you. But as a fund manager, we try to front end our investments to get set in those stories and, and develop a large percentage position when the market is cheap. And then as the as the cycle goes around, uh, we make efforts to try to be aligned with that. So rather than uh, investing in a, let's say, a, a company which is starting its feasibility study at nine or 10 o'clock. Now, I, my assessment in those circumstances is that if you're starting your feasibility study, then you're going to run into the top of the boom and possibly a crash before you raise your money to build your project. Um, and, and that might be a good thing, right? Because you don't want to raise your money and then the market crashes and, and you've got nowhere else to get it from uh, and you're probably facing horrid commodity prices and wondering whether you draw your debt and all sorts of other things. Um, so we, we try to invest in things which have semi-defined projects uh, in the three through six o'clock uh, and then and then take it from there. So I, I mean, in an ideal world, um, you'd have a portfolio of things that have feasibility studies being delivered at sort of six or seven. They still have an ability to explore to keep the market very interested but then they're developing a project um, and and going into cash flow about nine o'clock. That would be absolutely outstanding. And do you ever buy producing miners? So you, you're getting towards the end of the clock and you go, okay, we're just going for the cash flow here now. We tend to be very focused in our in our portfolio development. So, um, you know, there might be 10 or 15 things in the portfolio when it's absolutely cra uh, uh, cram jam full. Um, and uh, we've we've never we've never said let's go out and buy a few miners just to sort of hedge some of our risks here. Uh, we've never had that kind of portfolio approach. Um, but you know, if we were a, a much larger fund and we're prepared to take many many more positions, um, that might be a behaviour that we would consider. In saying that, we have owned uh, operating positions before and certainly wouldn't rule it out in the future. Um, but uh, it hasn't been something that we've ever engaged in as a sort of a cyclical hedge. So. The lead times of mining is so long, though. I mean, you you buy just say uh, a gold miner in this feasibility phase at six o'clock. You're talking a couple of years to ride along with it. Do you have periods where you're just like just twiddling your thumbs, going, well, "I've just got to wait it out," kind of? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a I'm a geologist who worked for uh, almost a decade in in mining geology, and. Um, I, I always loved geology, but the thing that I really loved about mining geology is it combines that scientific passion with problem solving. And in a mine, there's always a problem and it needs to be solved. And the time frame for it is usually five minutes ago rather than having any time to think about it. And you become a bit of a production junkie or some people do. Um, and I think that uh, that's one frustration which I bring to funds management is that um, I like to be really busy and uh, I like to have 
uh, a few problems to um, to have in front of me that need doing now. I don't like anything which has a month to be done because uh, I'm probably not going to get to it for the next uh, 28 days anyway. Um, so yeah, we we do find there's periods where you say, okay, uh, these things are ticking along. Um, they're the times where you probably spend more time uh, on the ground if you can, looking at what they're doing and really developing a great understanding of or a far better understanding of what the project is going to turn into and, and turning your eye to the upside. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, can this be extended? Is there an exploration story to go along with it? Uh, or could you engage in strategic M&A to start to build a portfolio around that company, uh, which would be useful to, you know, uh, to, to leverage its value as the, um, as the cycle carries on. And when you're investing, are you backing the deposit or the people, or does it have to be a combination of both? Well, you're backing both. That's the reality. If you're an equity investor, uh, you have to back um, the deposit and you have to back the people. If you're going to hold a few hundred thousand shares, less than a percent, um, you can be much more flexible on that. But if you're going to be holding sort of between five and 20%, you're indelibly wedded to uh, to both. And um, you can't change things like the deposit. Uh, you, they just have to be made to work. So technical DD is, is pretty important to get that decision-making um, done right at the start. Uh, having said that, We've never wandered off into uh, a great deal of really sort of fancy commodity things or unusual processing or anything like that. We've tried to keep our technical risks quite low. People is one of the areas where in our experience, that's where you get the most surprises. Um, you can have your biggest wins as well, but uh, it's it's the part which is the the hardest to get right. And uh, but, but you are definitely backing that because without a, the right person at the front, it, it won't work. And previous to that, do you do you have to take a, a view of the commodity and go, I want to be in this commodity? Like yeah. in 2017, you go, look, we think gold's going up, or at least in Aussie dollars, it's going up. We're happy to, because the volatility in commodity prices is so wild. I mean, you must have some moments where you go, oh, this is looking a bit dicey. <laughs> yeah. it's Well, it's, it's very difficult to make new investments uh, or even follow an investment when you have a pessimistic view of the underlying commodity. Um, and uh, I mean... <laughs> You've got to face it as well that um, the time when the company will will often come to you, particularly if it's a company which is sort of getting its sequence right and you know landing the news, landing a raising, etc. They'll come to you when they're sort of you know they're really on the balls of their feet and everything's going right, uh, and that's you know you're probably paying for perfection at that point uh, in some cases. Um, we tend not to take a a really deep view of the commodity, so it doesn't drive our decision making to the extent where we say. Nickel's about to pop. Let's go and get into some nickel stuff. Um, what we'd much rather do, uh, because we have a holding period, usually starting at a sort of three to five year outlook. Um, or in the history, historically, it's often been quite a bit longer than that. Um, shorter as well in some cases. Uh, you don't want to get the commodity wrong, but at the same time, um, you don't want to be chasing things driven by your view on the commodity uh, and finding yourself in very leveraged plays. So, I mean, at the moment, I've heard a lot of commentators saying, Nickel's going to the moon, and let's be honest, it probably is. Um, nickel has some fantastic years, you know, roughly one in 10. Uh, maybe that's its one in 10. But then commentators say to get best exposure, uh, go and find yourself something which is lowish grade, but it's got a lot of nickel tons in it because it won't work at any other time in the cycle. They don't say that last section sentence, but that's what they mean. Um, you mean a marginal operation? Yeah, yeah, marginal deposit. And, and they're correct. You know, those things will definitely uh, have their inherent value go up. Uh, as by by a far quicker rate than than a high grade deposit, um, but at the same time, uh, if the nickel price comes back down in this specific example, you'll be trapped in something which doesn't work for most of the rest of the cycle, and you so, won't be able to get out of it. it. Exactly, you'll be trapped, particularly if you're a large investor. So we've we've tried to avoid uh, getting into situations where we're driven by a commodity view because it can often drive you to make the wrong technical decisions about what you want to be involved in. Uh, but and, and in saying that, uh, you take a you take a perspective on the risk that the commodity itself uh, provides. So, if you and me, Callum, wanted to go out and start a little gold mine, uh, we'd need a shovel and a pan. Well, we'd need a deposit first, but a shovel and a gold pan, and we, we could make gold uh, between us pretty easily. Um, the diggers did it; uh, it was hard work. But you know, they and then you can sell the gold in the street. So you know, you could walk down Collins Street. You could probably sell it somewhere between Parliament. And, um, and the Docklands, uh, you'll find someone who'll buy it off of you. Uh, now, it's not that easy with everything else. So probably the next level up in terms of risk is copper. Uh, you can usually produce a nice clean concentrate. And uh, for that reason, 
the copper market, you know, there's known impurities, but um, there's a very, very liquid market for copper concentrates, of which no two are identical, but they're all very similar. Um, and copper is reasonably easy as far as metallurgy goes. You know, gold, then copper uh, is, is sort of entry-level stuff. Um, you get into mixed base metals, uh, you know, lead, zinc, um, things like that. You start to experience lower payabilities. So your copper cons might get a, you might be paid for 90% of the contained metal. By the time you're in zinc, you're getting closer to 70% of the contained value. Uh, so, you know, your deposit needs to work a lot harder. It needs to be better in the ground uh, to, to meet a lower uh, threshold of payability there. Um, and then, you know, there are risks that come from, uh, if you want to be in the bulks, um, iron ore or coal, and coal has its own emotional issues attached to it at the moment, but um, you need uh, large logistics. So your CapEx uh, threshold is, is far, far higher than it is for something like gold. So there are all these risks that creep in there from the commodity that you're exposed to, how it's extracted, how it's sold and how it's moved to its market. That, uh, that, and we try to avoid those technical risks. It's very interesting just listening to there. I'm going to say, is that one reason why investors love to back gold companies? I mean, most of the exploration goes into gold. You can always sell it to investors because like, it's the perennial gold bug thing. Like, It's always in demand and yada, yada, yada. And then you're saying it's the easiest to sort of uh, get out of the ground. Is that fair to say that you, from that, you then focus on gold companies? Well, yes, it is. Uh, historically, we've put probably more than half of our money into gold. I don't know if that's what investors understand, but I do think that's the reason why there are so many gold companies because they are typically just easier. Uh, whatever the threshold is in terms of um, development of a copper project, for example, you can lower that threshold for a gold company. Uh, and it's not, you know, you're not talking ounces versus tons. It's just you can scale a gold project uh, sometimes back to something which is smaller and start earlier. Now, by the time you start doing that, you get into an argument about, you know, are you are you properly capitalising the project and all of that? There's definitely risks that creep in from trying to cut corners, but at the same time, you tend to be able to cut more corners in gold than you can in many other things, just because you need far less infrastructural support to make it work. So you mentioned coal there. Would you have you guys taken a view? that many did that you wouldn't invest in coal or were you open to the idea of doing it if the right thing came along? Uh, we, we're an ASX listed company at the end of the day and we have a, a lot of shareholders. All funds have stakeholders, but ASX, ASX listed companies are you know a little bit more visible from that perspective. Um, we've, we've dabbled loosely in coal over the years and I mean over the last 30 odd years uh, and we've never had a great deal of success in it. And I think that's because um, to to get the technical part of coal right, uh, you need to have a, a fair bit of coal experience. Now we're mostly metalliferous people in terms of the experience that we bring from mining. So uh, I think we've, we've kind of looked at coal and thought, well, I, I can't tell if that's really good or really bad. Um, <laughs> and, and for that reason, we had avoided it. Uh, now, fast forward to now, um, and that there is a lot of pushback from the investment market. So I think if I was to stick my hand up and say, Lion's going to invest in coal, um, I'd get a few phone calls from people saying, I, I think that's a poor decision and we're going to sell our shares uh, and that's on a moral ground. Now, I'm not taking a moral position on that. I, I have a moral position, but I don't think there's any upside from, from disclosing it. But uh, I, I think you need to respect that. It's not my money. It's the shareholder's money. Um, or quite a bit of it is my money at the end of the day because I am a shareholder and, and a large one. But... I, uh, I don't I don't drive those decisions um, and we don't drive them for shareholders. So I think things like that, um, it's it's something where there is such a fierce emotion around it, uh, it's just easy to avoid. It, and isn't you know, this the, part of the, the argument for coal is to say, look, nobody wants to fund it, nobody wants to touch it. If everybody's going to keep using it, it's going to send the price sky high. Yeah, well, and that's what it did. Um, I think, you know, and maybe this is sort of disclosing that I've, I've got a little bit of a scientific view here and, probably a little less emotionally driven. Uh, but I, I think it is somewhere between ironic and outright humorous that um, in the year, I mean, if you had to pick one year in the last 5,000 years and call it the year of ESG, <laughs> 2021 was the year of ESG. And what were the best performing commodities in that year? <laughs> Oil, gas, and coal. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think, you know, maybe that's just anomalous, but um, yeah, you're right. This will result in uh, very, very little new production in coal being funded to come to market. And in fact, if you 
were to look at um, exploration stats, there has been a lifeline cut off to people that want to explore for coal, people that want to explore for oil. Those dollars have come right down. So um, there will be a scarcity uh, that creeps in uh, into the market and uh, and that will affect the price. Now, you know, the, the, the time it takes to find something and exploit it uh, is is quite long. So if you have a if you have a five-year break of looking for things, that is going to be felt for de- decades after. So if there is not a very instantaneous move to very sustainable things and an absolute uh, removal of the reliance on, on coal in places like Australia to, to power economies, um, it will be felt through higher prices. So I'm not, I'm not forecasting anything there, but I think it's pretty evident the way it will It's, it's interesting, the psychology, though, because I look at the uh, oil juniors at the moment. We don't have a heap in Australia, but we do have some. They're all getting these huge margins. They're not moving. You look at the lithium ones who don't make any money. They've gone bananas. So, it's that, so do you think there will ever be a day, though, that you get the same rush to go? Like, does anyone really want to rush into the oil sector going, oh, oil's going, oh, I can't wait to barge in like they, they're doing with lithium now? Yep, yep. Or does oil have to go to like $200 where you just go, this is just crazy, I've got to get on it? Well, it, it, I, I think about these things in very simple ways. And uh, I, I think that people as investors tend to pay far more for something that they don't understand than something that they do. And that works in reverse as well uh, to an extent. Um, and I think that uh, the level of emotion that I see towards fossil fuel companies now um, has pushed towards the kind of emotion that there was towards tobacco companies now, I haven't tracked what tobacco companies have done in terms of share price performance over the last 20 years, but I, I doubt that they command any sort of a premium in the market. I, actually, I any- looked that up actually a while back. They actually did really well. After yeah. that that uh, lawsuit in the 90s when they got taken to the cleaners, you would have thought, oh, God, that's a horrible investment. <laughs> They've actually been quite well, a good one and paid it, out it, big dividends, whether you want to invest in that industry, though. It, well, it probably – I mean, if you just think about tobacco as a, as a thing um, – there was a point where it was like you should smoke it when you're pregnant because it's good for you and it'll calm you down. And then there's a realization that it's horrible. And then there's sort of a, an adjustment and an aftermath. And then you and then you get to where we are now, which is that if you want to smoke it, you accept all the risks and it's on you. So it's it's like a gambling company, I suppose. Not everybody's cup of tea, but it only if I suppose you can partition it, you can you can justify it to yourself if you're an investor by saying. It doesn't affect anyone except for the people who choose to do it. They've made a decision as an adult and, and off you go. I suppose coal differs from that. So uh, this is where my example breaks down in that, um, you know, the standard arguments are that uh, this is contributing to climate change. And and I, no one disputes that burning coal pushes carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So I'm, I'm not trying to get into a climate change discussion here. It's more uh, that argument applies to everybody. So you can't ignore it and say, well, it's only the grown-ups who burn coal. Um, you know, it, it, if it's burnt, it's going to affect everyone within a jurisdiction. Uh, so I think that um, that could have a, a slightly different effect in the aftermath there. But but we should whatever- say that it's the it's China, it's India, these kind of countries that are, are using it, and we do here as well, but they're the big, big users. It's Is it fair to say it's a Western investor issue about whether we should be financing this? these projects to deliver it to them yeah i think that's the view that a lot of the large funds have taken and uh i'm i mean lion is not a a fund to be considered as something which uh, sets the tone for uh you know what commodities should be acceptable in the next 10 years or something um we're we're a pool of money which is a a very very small drop in that ocean uh, by comparison so the larger pools you know the black rocks etc have been quite outspoken uh in their objection towards things like coal um and you know, I think active, actively encouraging uh, the companies which they're involved in to sell their exposures. Um, we've seen BHP move strongly out of uh, fossil fuels for, for that very reason. Um, and I, I so I think that decision being made by those large pools of money, they're reacting to what their stakeholders are telling them uh, on mass, I would assume. Uh, so, you know, that's that's driven it to a point. Now, would there ever be a return from that? I tend to think it would be very difficult for those big pools of money to reverse their decisions and say, no, you as stakeholders were wrong. We're now chasing the money because it's, it seems to have been a, an ethical driven decision-making process to now to, to flip that on its head. I, I think they would lose far too many subscribers and they would see that as a, a difficult thing for them to do, but it's not to say that there aren't pools of money that wouldn't take advantage of it. Um, 
There's a lot of Middle Eastern money which has been made through oil. I think they probably understand fossil fuel burning revenues better than anyone. And, uh, you know, that they might be some pools of money that can support coal. Um, economies like China and India, uh, who are the big end users, um, could very well find that uh, they're quite motivated to sponsor that as well for their own good, um, but also for their own profitability. I've thought too, those so sort of guess. private trading houses like, uh, uh, is it Glen, is Glencore private? I can't remember. Glen, Glencore is now listed, but they're a trading house as much as, as much as they are a miner, yeah. Yeah, those ones that sort of, well, private equity will finance that sort of thing while there's a dollar in it. Um, um, it it's possible, yeah, yeah. I And I think, um, you know, there's probably still a bit of swirling uh, emotional water around that for, for a lot of those pools of money. Uh, Glencore has mopped up some of the assets that were for sale and they've done quite well out of them. Um, but uh, at, at the end of the day, um, I think for new pools of money to say, let's move into this, uh, they're going to have to test the water about what their backers feel. So I tend to feel, as you said before, it might be private money coming from one or two large sources. Just to bring it back to the battery minerals a little bit and the, the sort of the idea of a story, one thing I, with like nickel, lithium, um, copper, these all have home markets in other industries. So nickel is used in stainless steel or whatever. And then you go, hang on, 2% is the battery, is going into batteries at the moment. And everybody wants to pile in because of the battery story. And then you're like, guys, you better be watching what's going on with the home market as well, because if that shits itself, nickel's going to go down. Do you think people don't appreciate uh, the total demand of, of these commodities when they latch onto these kind of stories? Yes, that's the short answer. Uh, I think there's a, it's easy to uh, appreciate the upside of a uh, commodity story, uh, and it's difficult to truly understand what the what the dynamics are uh, beneath the surface. So, as you say, breaking the market down into here's the traditional use and here's the new use, uh, but that's what's going to drive all the price is usually something which is well below, I think, most investors' um, uh, sort of line of attention, if you like. Uh, but, but having said that, um, you know there are a lot a lot of people who go around peddling these stories who sort of make themselves out as experts on those markets. It suits them to talk about what those markets are going to do. That doesn't necessarily mean that they understand it in a lot of depth either. Um, the guys who are producers, um, and I mean, Ken Brinston at uh, Pilbara is, I think, probably one of the, the best in the lithium business at uh, seeing what's going on in the lithium space and translating it into a form which um, investors can understand. Uh, is I think he's well across uh, some of those risks. You might um, not have seen, he just announced his retirement this morning. <laughs> I don't blame him. <laughs> he's done well. Yeah, well, yeah, he's going, maybe he's going out the top. It could be another symbol. Did, did he really retire? <laughs> Sorry? I, I, hadn't, I hadn't seen that he'd retired, but... Uh, well, I mean, it just there was an announcement this morning saying CEO succession. But I met go. Ken at that conference, actually, in 2017. Yep. He came across as a very lovely guy. Well, um, and now I'll tell you who else I met at that conference, Tim Goida, who yet, has become yet. the king of Australian mining. Uh, obviously, his company, which was called Chalice at the time, hit one of the biggest discoveries in the last 20 years or something. What are the odds of you backing a company that finds that kind of elephant strike? Pretty slim. Uh, <laughs> to, to, I mean, if you if you just want to boil it down into quick statistics um so they've had an elephant strike maybe you say de gray has had an elephant strike although i, th I think in terms of contained metal and just doing it on that kind of a value that the two are going to differ um but they're some of the bigger exploration discovery stories uh in the last couple of years um and that's out of a pool of what 650 odd companies listed on asx who could expose themselves to some level of exploration discovery um so that's pretty slim odds. To be in that position, uh, you need to be first of all. I mean, there's no point. There's no point if you want to discover something big and unusual, going and exploring just a long strike from something which is already known. Um, you know, you'd be looking in an area which is fairly well picked over. You're going to have to have a revolutionary scientific concept, which means, you know, I suppose, your chances of being wrong are pretty high. Uh, so, what Chalice had done, and De Grey, in fact, um, had had taken maybe not new science, but a new scientific paradigm uh, into an area. Uh, they looked over all of the data which already existed and they put their own turn on it. Um, and in, I, I think you could pr probably say with hindsight that um, the data which did exist 
historically had been looked at incorrectly and been judged to be uh, insufficiently anomalous. Uh, and these guys said, well, no, there's no reason for that. So let's go and test this ourselves. So, you know, I think they knew that there was anomalous nickel. Um, I might be getting this slightly wrong, so I apologise if I am, but I think they knew that there was uh, some anomalism to be concerned about. They had a view that the rock types were going to be correct to support something, and it has turned out to be very, very large. So, um, you know, they've given themselves the best possible chance of success there by taking that approach, and that probably slims their odds, but it still doesn't make it something which is really easy to pick from an investor. And just to show how difficult that was, I wrote up Chalice in, at the time, but their focus at that time was selling their Victorian gold asset and they had this one in Canada. They're like, these, these are our two we're most positive about. Oh, by the way, we've got these few other ones around Australia. And it was like, wasn't even part of the part of the narrative, if you like. And then suddenly it just like, whoa, where did that come from? It's just, that's what, I guess that's the thrill of the chase, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Well, and specifically on the Chalice example, they, they sold their Canadian gold uh, ground into what, was the the probably the early to mid part of the groundswell of Canada getting off of cannabis and forgetting about that as a pool of risky investment and getting back into mineral investment. Because, um, I mean, Canada was a couple of years behind Australia in starting this boom because, you know, there was just so much money tied up in uh, let's do medicinal cannabis. Um, <laughs> that all flooded into gold um, after that. And I think, um, I think Chalice were beneficiaries of that. They were able to sell into that groundswell. Um, so they, they found themselves a little bit cashed up. Uh, but it was probably a bit too early to sell their, their Victorian stuff, um, although it was selling well to the market as a story that they just needed to go and drill and, and, and beat up a bit before it could any decision could be made. Um, and then COVID hit. And I, I, I wonder, I'm not sure I'll ever get any uh, sort of truth on this. It might remain a cartoon forever, but uh, I, I can remember sitting there with a really uh, sort of um, silly grin on my face just thinking, Geez, it took a global pandemic to go and explore two hours from Perth. Who would have thought you'd find something there? And you probably couldn't unless the borders weren't closed. <laughs> um, it might not be true, but uh, I think it's a nice part of the fairy tale. Well, what, yeah, they actually released that announcement right at the bottom of the market. It was extraordinary. Um, somebody wrote in, I told that you were coming on the show. Did you Have you ever studied or do you give... Um, credence to the idea of a Kondratiev wave, like a 30-year up cycle of commodities and a 30-year down cycle. Have you ever heard of the, the Russian economist Kondratiev? I'm sure that you would have. I'm going to make myself look a bit ignorant, but I'll have to tell the truth. Uh, what you're talking about rings a bell, but the name I couldn't say I recognise. Uh, certainly can't picture a face. Um, <laughs> you won't picture but, his face. He died in 1930. <laughs> no, but <laughs> I mean, like that. the concept of longer-term commodity cycles that overprint um, the shorter term, call it mining busts and booms. Uh, I, I think there's a fair bit of credibility to to that kind of a suggestion. Well, it's, in, well, um, it's interesting because I used to work with a guy who, he was a Russian guy who was asked by Stalin to study the um, the capitalist West. And he, he sort of at the time forecast, well, seems to have a lot to do with these commodity swings uh and all that type of thing anyway it goes very deep and some people are very passionate about it but we won't follow that just somebody wrote in uh about it well um, let me let me give you a one-liner on that before we move on because i mean one thing which has driven this boom that we're in is that from uh we had the china boom we had the gfc and then everything came back it came flooding back because of stimulus and uh mining reached its absolute peak in 2011 and Glencore listed as a, it was the biggest ever IPO of a mining company uh, in mid-2011. Now, the mining sector then separated from the rest of the market and plunged for five years. So 2011 through to 15 were absolutely shocking if you're involved in any kind of mining. And I think it was so bad because miners had just over-invested in so much shit that invest the bigger investors just said, you guys are idiots. We can't deal with it anymore. We're going to halve our positions. We're not just going to sort of slacken. So market weights all pushed well below cyclical low norms. Um, and uh, I think I think in, um, in coming uh, through that five-year period, the mining industry had to stop investment that normally would have continued. Even if it was just ticking along, it stopped. Um, and because of that, teams were lost. You know, So you might be able to keep a development team in place for a couple of years, but for five, you can't. They go. Your exploration team. So if these people have been together for 20 years, all of a sudden they're disbanded. You can't restart that stuff. 
just quickly. And uh, so I, we've seen this five-year period and a very slow restart off the back of it of investment in future sources of uh, supply of commodities. And and that is that is causing a squeeze now. But let, let me jump in there. So BHP Rio said, well, we went way too heavy on the debt and everything. Ever since they've tried to pay it down, they're pumping out massive dividends. Their capital expenditure, as I understand it, is going down, 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 down. Do you see that as a bull factor for the next five years? I, I see it as something which is definitely going to contribute uh, within the next five years. It might not be a bull factor because if, if commodity prices fall away because inflation bites the entire global economy, um, then, then we're, going to have a, we're going to have a mining crash and an equity crash at the same time. So, uh, it, But in saying but that, that... That would theoretically set up the next boom, right? Because you'd it, have... It certainly the... would. It certainly would. In fact, that is exactly what it would do because um, you would come out of uh, the one boom and those big miners would be in exceptionally good health, which they weren't in 2011 or even 2015. Um, whereas if they if they go into the start of the next bust with very healthy balance sheets, you can see who the obvious consolidators are going to be. It'll be the ones that are feeling most confident from that. And they will still have strong cash flows, but they won't have to apply those to big and cumbersome debt positions. And, and I think this theme of uh, the ongoing um, underinvestment and and that will continue to pinch, it will probably mean that commodity price reactions to um, demand growth are going to be sharper than they would have been in, say, the you know 2008 through to 2011 sort of period. So I, I, I think that bodes well for the next for the next boom. And, and if I'd overlay one more thing, um, if you think about the boom that was provoked by China, uh, that was coming off of the back of a very, very, very long hiatus of any interest whatsoever in miners. There'd been this uh, massive fraud in Indonesia called Briex in 1998, I think it was. Uh, that washed through the market and it, and it absolutely destroyed confidence in explorers because they were just regarded as liars overnight. So all of that money uh, that was in exploration has gone, well, what can we invest in now? You know, we can't do exploration because they're all liars. Well, why don't we do dot com stuff? That's really interesting. So, you know, there was this dot com boom. It's, it it makes absolute sense to me that one deep bust gives way to another sector's absolute bubble, uh, the dot com bubble. And it wasn't until the dot com bubble popped and then absolutely washed out before you saw the signs of liquidity starting to sneak back into mining. But it gave way to the biggest boom that we've ever seen. Now we've just had a very very long bust and washout in mining. And we're experiencing a very different, but still, uh, you know, tech-driven uh, equity inflation, if you like, which is supported by a very low cost of money. So I think if you were to change a few of those settings and have money washing out of tech uh, and wanting to find something which has a more stable future, I think the mining sector would probably be a major beneficiary of that. Just talking about liquidity flows, part we touched earlier on how gold stocks have just keep grinding down, 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 even though Aussie dollar gold is still high. Do you think that is investors taking their profits out of the gold sector and pumping it into lithium and other areas? Yeah, there's definitely there's definitely there's definitely shinier things. Um, so for the for the gold sector to perform uh, equities, you need to have I think a, a a longer performance in the gold price. A couple of little kicks here and there um, doesn't really wash a whole whole heap of money in. Now that's not to say they're not good value. I think if you compare value between say the 2007 or even 2010 gold industries and now, you'll probably find that gold equities are far, far cheaper uh, on a couple of metrics that you can use to compare those markets. Um, uh, and the explanation for that is that uh, investors are just happy to put their money elsewhere because they feel that the return will be better. So that combines outlook for gold price um, uh, with outlook for everything else within the commodity space. I just wanted to touch on China a little bit. Obviously, they're the big demand. We had a spook in September when everybody, well, not everybody, a lot of people thought that the housing market might go, the sort of fear that's always hanging over the, the miners. Do you track China especially? Well, you can do that if you want, but, um, you know, you, that means you've got to believe their, their statistics. Uh, and they're probably, they're probably sort of roughly aligned with whatever the midline is doing, but manipulated nonetheless. Um, I think you, you do need to be very aware of what China's doing, but I don't track it religiously. Uh, not to the point where I could say, what are we, what are we seeing in the next six months out? Uh, what's China doing in that time? It's more 
for me, uh, tracking China is how has their behaviour changed in the last five years um, and how does that make us feel about their aggression in the next five years? Interesting. Well, I mean, for anyone listening, is there a sector or a, one that you think is a pioneer or could be good value or really a project by project thing with you and it, you're really in the nitty details of those, the geology, which uh, is sort of specific to your strategy? Yeah, well, look, the, the things that I find really interesting about the mining market today are that there is an awful lot of money flowing in, which means that uh, you can say, what are my chances of being involved in a discovery? Uh, if, if you could say your chances are nothing because no one's exploring, then put your money in BHP or Rio if you need to be in a mining sector thing because you know it, it'll just be the place where it's probably going to experience the least volatility. Um, or, or even an ETF or something like that. Um, so now's the time when you can invest in exploration. If someone gets good results, they will probably get rewarded for it. And you need to be a judge of whether or not you want to keep your money in there. I mean, this is one of the biggest problems that gets caused in these markets is people put 20 cents in, it turns into 40 cents and they think they're a genius and it's going to go to a dollar. And if it only ever gets to 40 and then goes back to five, you know, they're, they're always sitting there feeling like they're hooked, but they don't really know why. Um, so so I, I think with that caution in mind, um, now is an exciting time to be looking at things in the exploration space. Uh, you're going to have to double check what a company is worth before you get into it. Just look at the market cap. If all they're doing is exploring and they're capitalised at $300 million, then you know, second guess yourself. But uh, now is the time you can look at those. Um, I think you need to be careful with the developers. Uh, some of them are going to come out of the other end. There's going to be a rump of ones which are injured. And that is bust or no bust. Uh, I think there are going to be some who just fall over here because they're spending the money too quickly on things uh, which are inflating too quickly. Um, and I, I think uh, you can probably look at the ones which are very close to production now uh, and feel that they will be rewarded by the market in a short period of time if they can deliver their cash flow. And you can probably read through their uh, results and make a judgment for yourself as to how close they are and whether just, or not they're picking Just on that. I mean, how efficient do you think the market is when it comes to mining stocks, juniors? I mean, it's one thing to see a good project. And then you go, well, is it priced already? Do you think there are inefficiencies there that a retail guy that's not like you looking at it all the time can exploit or find? Yeah, I do. Uh, and they're usually driven by time. So the biggest, uh, you know, the best projects at the lowest price you're going to find in a market where no one's interested. Uh, it's going to be very unusual to find something in an excited market like this where you can say, wonderful project, really poorly priced. Now, when you look at a company, you're not just buying the project, like we said before, you're buying the person as well. And uh, in many, many cases, you might find that if it is a good project and it's been really poorly promoted, that is the problem. Um, but how do you fix that as someone who's got $5,000 to spend? You can't. It's just an avoid. Uh, if you're prepared, I mean, that's, they're good M&A targets, those things, but it still doesn't mean that they'll be taken over um, because, you know, poor promoters are often uh, the first ones to try and protect their jobs as well. Interesting. All right, well, let's leave it there. So just to bring it back to the clock where we began. So basically you're saying it's time to be a little bit wary um, for maybe with a mining crash. Uh, there's an expression in the market where, Bottoms are an event, tops are a process. So would you imagine that we do go into some sort of down phase? Would you expect that to be like, oh, China's economy's just collapsed, or it's like a grinding sort of, oh, you know, it might come back kind of ooh, grind down sort of situation? What, what's the more likely scenario? The biggest risk at the moment, I think, is uh, inflation. And um, how does that manifest? Uh, it's probably going to have to manifest at some stage with interest rates going up. In an official sense, the bond market has already started to creep, but I think there's still, you know, a, a wavering. What do we do there? Um, so I, I think interest rates tend to move all at once. Uh, they're not going to creep up from virtually zero to ten percent just by a, a, a war of, uh, you know, death of a thousand cuts. To battle inflation, it's going to need to be some big jumps at some stage, and I think that's probably going to be a point where people start to say, "Oh, we start to believe this now." All of a sudden, the cost of capital changes. Um, so I think that's a risk to be aware of. But, you know, crashes in the equity market can be dri driven by perception rather than necessarily by events as well. So I think once that realisation sets in, that could be the point where the equity market starts to correct. I don't see too many intrinsic risks within the mining sector. I think that for now, uh, that will be 
that will be crash risks, I mean. Uh, I think that will be driven by the equity market if it's going to happen. And, and what we know is that you you always have the end of a cycle. Uh, so it's not a question of if, it's a, it's a question of when. I assume you have a list of stocks where you're like, you know, if the crash came along, you'd be happy to step in at some point. Yep, definitely, definitely. Mm, uh, interesting. And, and I guess, I mean, from my own perspective in Lion, uh, we've just sold our largest investment. So we're, we're eating our own cooking here and saying uh, now's not a bad time to be exiting things. You can see the liquidity is there because it's coming to us wanting to buy things. And uh, so we will find ourselves uh, within the next 12 months having probably $90 million of cash. Uh, so that shopping list could be quite long. And um, I'd be happy to buy more of them than less, in fact, in the next time round, rather than sitting at 5%. I think we'd be quite happy to buy larger percentages. In that, so, in uh, terms of your fund, do you have a mandate how high cash you can go? Or no, no. Uh, but we we have a lot of shareholders that have been with us for a long time, uh, and I think we'd like to see some of that distributed. So, uh, the board at the moment is deliberating over what a dividend policy needs to look like, and um, I think we'll be able to speak more about that probably in the next two or three weeks. Uh, we're aiming to. Great. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. And definitely, I want to get you back on because this is uh, fascinating stuff. It's such an important part of the Aussie market. So thank you. It's been great to talk to you about it, Callum. And I really appreciate you inviting me to come along.